This month on Security Management Highlights. So we hear lots about if you're breached that you should call someone, but there's never really any discussion about what you should do after that point. You've been hacked. What steps should your business take next? Assistant Editor Megan Gates has the scoop on how to handle a cybersecurity incident. Agencies from different levels of government often can't communicate very well. The U.S. government has struggled to establish strong emergency communications capabilities during a crisis. Senior Editor Mark Tarallo explains what steps the feds are taking to improve. Plus, The art of strategic persuasion is one of the business skills that are becoming more critical for security professionals. ASIS Chief Global Knowledge and Learning Officer Michael Gibbs talks about the business skills he learned at the Wharton ASIS Program for Security Executives. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. Does your company know what steps to take if you become the victim of a cybersecurity incident? In this month's cover story, Assistant Editor Megan Gates outlines best practices from cyber experts that can help you recover from an attack and get back to business as usual. Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Holly. Thanks for having me. Megan, why do you think now is the time to write an article of this nature that outlines for companies step-by-step what they should do if they suspect they are the victim of a cybersecurity breach? Well, Holly, that's a good question. The average cost of a data breach is $4 million. It's a 29% increase since 2013 globally, according to a recent report by IBM and Panaman Institute. And then in 2015, there were 2,100 confirmed data breaches and almost 80,000 incidents, according to Verizon's 2015 data breach investigations report. So data breaches are happening a lot. And we always hear about, you know, people come on the news, there's different announcements, there are press releases sent, you know, if you're breached, call the FBI. If you're breached, call the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. But there aren't really any specifics about if you are actually breached, what should you do? What shouldn't you do? So we hear lots about, you know, if you're breached that you should call someone, but there's never really any discussion about what you should do after that point and what you should do as a company to sort of put yourself in the best position possible to handle a data breach. So that's where I got the idea for the article and thankfully our editor also really liked it and so I just decided to run with it and that's how we got our July cover story. Yes, I think it's really timely. And how did you go about organizing the article in terms of the steps and plans that you outline? And what cybersecurity best practices influence your decision making for putting it together? Yeah, so I really thought about it, sort of breaking it down because I did several interviews, I think like five, and I had lots of research and information. And I was thinking about how can I put this all together so it's actually usable and makes sense to someone who's reading through it. So I decided to sort of go with kind of a how-to structure. So talking about what the problem is with the number of data breaches that we're seeing, why this needs to sort of be addressed, and then going through what you should do ideally before a breach occurs and crafting a plan. So talking to someone who actually helps companies do that for a living, Gary Bahadur, the senior director of FTI Consulting's risk management practice about how he works with clients to plan out what they should do if they are breached, to identify areas where they might be more vulnerable, and then what information they should expect to hand over to law enforcement should they turn 
turn to law enforcement and get them involved. So after that, what you should do before the breach went to, okay, now you've been breached. You've identified that there's someone in your system. What should you do and what should you not do that could potentially make it worse? So that was really interesting to talk to different people about those best practices. I talked to a couple people from the Department of Justice and then also Ed McAndrew, a partner at Ballard Spars LLP Privacy and Data Security Group. And he's also a former federal prosecutor. So he had a good perspective to bring to the story. And then going off of that, what to do and what to sort of expect after the breach is officially over, you know, if you're going to go to court and what you should, as a company, sort of keep an eye out for to hopefully prevent this from happening to you again. So I think a lot of companies out there might hear the word law enforcement or federal investigation and probably have a little bit of trepidation approaching that whole element. So what can companies do before they're even attacked proactively? to build that relationship with law enforcement and then in the investigative process if necessary how can they best work with law enforcement yeah good questions holly well one thing that companies can do is i talked to ed mcandrew specifically about this because he can sort of see it from both sides as someone who's formerly worked with the federal government and is now out in private practice. So talking about sort of the organizations that are out there already for companies to reach out to make connections with people in law enforcement in the federal government who, if there was an incident or if they detected a data breach, like they could call and they have an existing relationship already. So some of those are InfraGuard and then the Information Sharing and Analysis Centers and Information Sharing and Analysis Organizations and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security new cybersecurity information sharing program. And McAndrew said, you know, joining these organizations and attending outreach programs is a great and easy way to sort of begin to build relationships with law enforcement and something that could be really beneficial for them down the road if they are breached. Another big area that I talked to my sources about that companies should consider when it comes to law enforcement is if there is an incident, if there's a, a data breach, how much access they're willing to give law enforcement to their systems, to their data, and how much they are prepared to sort of share with them because, you know, obviously most companies want to find out who breached them and how it was done, but they want to be careful too that they're not opening themselves up to other areas of liability potentially if they let law enforcement into the building and looking into their systems and giving them complete access. So that's something that you definitely want to talk to your general counsel about as a company and sort of outline, you know, what the plan is and how much access you want to give law enforcement should you call them. And if a company finds themselves having to actually go to court it's a time-consuming and costly process. So what's some advice for organizations finding themselves in this legal situation? Yeah, that's something actually I talked to my two sources from the Department of Justice about. Michael Stawaz, he's the Deputy Chief for Computer Crime and Head of the DOJ Cybersecurity Unit. And then Leonard Bailey, Special Counsel for National Security in the DOJ Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section. And two of the things that they said that are really, really important for companies to remember is that if this happens, remember that you are are a victim of a crime and should be treated as such. You know, prosecutors are there trying to help you convict the person or the organization that's responsible for, for breaching your system and stealing your data. And it's their job to keep you updated of what's going on in terms of the investigation and what's happening in terms of the court case. There are some specific requirements where prosecutors are required to alert the company if something has happened, such as companies have a right to be informed at various stages, such as before a case is resolved, when charges are brought, if a plea deal is made, and they have the right 
right to appear to make a sentencing statement if an individual is convicted. Another thing that they definitely recommended is that companies need to remain vigilant. In the future, your current incident might be over, but that doesn't mean that it can't happen again. So companies really need to keep an eye on their systems, make sure that there's nothing unusual going on to hopefully prevent another data breach from happening. And if one does, that they can catch it quickly and take the steps that we've outlined in the article. So is there anything else you found in your research or interviews that you couldn't fit in the story you'd like to add for our readers and listeners? Yeah, so I did a good interview with um, Patrick Dennis. He's the CEO of Guidance Software, and he had an interesting perspective as somebody who's obviously in the cybersecurity industry, but also as a CEO. Um, you know, and his one word of advice was don't surprise the CEO with a data breach or cybersecurity incident. Have a plan to alert the board and the CEO that this is happening so that they're updated and they don't feel sort of taken aback or left out of the loop because that's never a good thing and never in anybody's best interest. Yes, I think that that's a huge part of, you know, all security is keeping that C-suite updated so it applies here just as much, if not even more. Thank you so much, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. Crisis response experts say it's critical that first responders are able to communicate across multiple government agencies and jurisdictions in a crisis. But the United States government is struggling in this regard. Senior Editor Mark Tarallo is here to tell us more. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Mark, can you outline the interoperable communication issue that the U.S. federal government has faced during many a crisis? Sure. Crisis response experts say it's critical for first responders and officials to have emergency communications interoperability, which is the ability to communicate across agencies and jurisdictions. What sometimes happens, and what's happened now quite a few times in response situations, is that agencies from different levels of government, federal, state, local, often can't communicate very well in a crisis. And sometimes agencies on the same level, say different federal agencies, also can't communicate well. They're on different spectrum on their on radio frequency. They don't have good interop communication plans. And uh, so communication really hinders response. Yes. And tell us more about FirstNet and the request for proposals it issued earlier this year. What happened with FirstNet was the nine 11 Commission, which issued its report in 2004, it looked at communication failures that first responders experience after the 9-11 attacks. And the commission recommended that radio spectrum be allocated to public safety in order to create an interoperable public safety communications network. Now, the commission recommended this in its report in 2004, but the effort to create that network didn't really begin in earnest until 2012. In 2012, Congress created the First Responder Network Authority, or FirstNet, to provide the first nationwide public safety broadband network for public safety agencies. And Mark, why did Congress establish the Office of Emergency Communications, and what did that body say about the response to the Navy Yard shooting? The roots of that were the response to Hurricane Katrina in 2005. There was a lot of problems in that response, and so a bipartisan report 
was issued by the U.S. House of Representatives, by Congress, on that response. The report was called A Failure of Initiative, and it found a complete breakdown in communications that paralyzed command and control and made situational awareness murky at best during the response to Hurricane Katrina. So given that pretty much disastrous response, Congress decided to establish the Office of Emergency Communications. They did that in the Post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act in that piece of legislation. And the Office of Emergency Communications, or OEC, it's designed to coordinate federal inter-op communication programs and also conduct outreach for support for emergency response providers. So in 2008, the OEC issued the first National Emergency Communications Plan, which included goals for improving communications capabilities at both the state and local levels. Moving forward in September 2013, moving forward in September 2013, if you recall, the Navy Yard shooting occurred. The response to that was also hindered by communication problems. So what happened there was the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, after the Navy Yard shooting, they issued their own report. They called it an action report. That came out in July 2014. That report found that some of the federal responders experienced communication problems, which hindered interoperability during that response. And the report also found that interoperability would have been enhanced if all responders had access to the same designated radio channel, which is really what FirstNet is supposed to do, but FirstNet has had delays in actually launching. What are some of the obstacles there with FirstNet that you just mentioned? What happened with FirstNet was, as I mentioned, the effort to create it didn't really begin in earnest until 2012. After that time, FirstNet issued a request for proposals, an RFP, for the deployment of this public safety broadband network. In April of this year, FirstNet officials said, we got a lot of RFPs so much so that we're going to extend the deadline. And the FirstNet officials said the decision to extend the deadline was driven by both the volume and nature of the capability statements and the proposals. Also, some people in their proposals said, we are submitting an RFP, however, we'd like more time in terms of timeline. So basically, where it stands now, FirstNet says that they want to make the RFP award by November 1st and pick the party who will actually do it. And then according to their timeline, they have an August 2018 goal for the network to have its initial markets installed. So that's still two years away. So there's still time there. And who knows, that could even be delayed further. There's also a Government Accountability Office report on emergency communications, which found inadequate interagency coordination as another issue. So how is that being addressed? That's another important piece of this. That involves all the agencies that work in these communication efforts. So what happened was, again, after 9-11, Congress created the Homeland Security Act of 2002. The Homeland Security Act created the Office of National Capital Region Coordination, ONCRC. Some people just refer to as CRC for short. So the CRC was created as a coordinating body. However, the GAO found that the CRC's coordination efforts 
have been lacking. They don't have a formal mechanism in place to coordinate a lot of key activities. And the CRC had created a joint federal committee, the JFC, to help coordination, but the JFC hasn't convened since 2014. And the CRC said in response, well, we're planning on restructuring that, but there's really no clear timetable for that restructuring. So from the federal agency point of view, coordination is still a problem. Well, thank you so much for filling us in on emergency communication as it pertains to the federal government and keep us updated on the changes. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Mark. Security leaders are seeing their traditional role as a security provider evolving into a strategic risk management function. ASIS Chief Global Knowledge and Learning Officer Michael Gibbs attended the Wharton ASIS program for security executives in November 2015. He joins us to talk about the business skills he learned that are necessary to thrive in this changing security environment. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Glad to be here. You write that business skills are becoming more and more critical for security professionals to do their job well. Tell us how the art of strategic persuasion, for example, follows that rule. The art of strategic persuasion is one of the business skills that are becoming more critical for security professionals, but it also is a skill that allows security to show that they have those business skills to the executive level. One of the exercises that we did in the Wharton class was before the class started, we took an exam, a questionnaire that showed us what our persuasion styles were. There's collaborator slash problem solver, competitor, accommodator, conflict avoider. And I believe I came out very close to the line of collaborator slash problem solver and competitor, which means I am um, high concern for my own outcome and medium concern for others' outcome. And we looked at that and we determined how we could use our personal negotiation styles to our best advantage and to the best advantage of, of creating a deal that was satisfactory to all parties. Another thing that we learned was that when you exercise strategic persuasion skills, credibility is key. To get anything done in a business, you have to have the ear of your staff, of the people you report to, of partners, of vendors, of colleagues. And you have to rely on credibility that you've built up. And the course in strategic negotiation and persuasion shows you how to develop that and to build upon it, communicate, and to get things done using soft power rather than formal authority. Excellent. And along those same lines, they said at Wharton being able to negotiate is key, which must be a little different than persuasion. Please explain. Yeah, negotiation and persuasion are definitely related. They're the same family, but negotiation is a bit more of a formal process. But it occurs within a company as well as between departments or between organizations. There are very informal negotiations negotiations that you conduct every day of your business life. You're trying to get someone to do something, they want to do something else, and you you form an agreement. With the Wharton program, it was emphasized that very few people actually are good negotiators. It's a skill that has to be developed. You can't just wing it. And the area that people overlook the most is preparation. According to Wharton statistics, the best negotiators are the ones who spend the most time figuring out what drives the other party and what they really want out of it and what both parties can get out of it. And key to that, the next phase after preparation is active listening. So you have to read between the lines. 
hear what the other person wants, how they're saying it, what their body language is like. And the whole process is dynamic. So if you can master those areas, you become a very proficient negotiator. Very few people have that skill. And the Warren professors emphasize that if you can gain that skill to influence people and gain good results for your department, your organization, you'll have a leg up on everyone. And it was interesting reading over your story that the key to winning an argument is framing the argument. But the typical person only spends about 5% of critical thinking and discussion time on doing that. So what was the takeaway here? What does it mean really to frame an argument and to critically think? about that. Typical negotiators only spend 5% of their time framing an issue and the best ones spend 20% of their time framing the issue, the most successful ones. Again, framing an argument in negotiation requires really knowing what the other party wants and what's at stake. And the old saying is that whoever frames an argument wins an argument. You don't want to position an argument so that right on the face of it, it's a slam dunk for you or puts the other party in a, in a disadvantageous position. The key takeaway really is preparation and not leaving anything to chance, not just going into a situation and saying, I'm going to put my cards on the table or I'm going to hardball this. It's really knowing what result you want and what the other person wants and how you can get to that. So again, preparation, active listening, flexibility. So it seems all of these lessons kind of build on one another and interrelate, which is interesting to hear. So while it may be obvious, you also write that leadership skills weren't overlooked at the course. What are some of the unique things about leadership they said that, you know, is not the same old, same old that we hear all the time? Sure. And to address your first point, when I was writing the article, it was actually quite difficult to separate the topics into different divisions because there's so much overlap between negotiation, strategic persuasion, leadership, other business skills. And I noticed when writing it, one area was phasing into another. So you're definitely right about that. It's one whole package. It's not a bunch of separate skills. As far as leadership, most of the leadership training took place on a visit to the Gettysburg battlefield. And we walked the battlefield and heard from experts at the scene, historians who told us about decisive moments on the battlefield, things that different generals, actions that they took or didn't take or decisions that they made. And we reenacted those and we put ourselves in the situation and said, well, what would we do in this case? How can we lead people? How can we get folks who have given up on the union cause because they've been betrayed, excoriated, bedraggled? How do we get them to come back to the union cause and fight? Union officer Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain had been presented with 120 soldiers also from Maine, which increased his numbers by more than a third. But they had rebelled in their unit and their regiment had been dissolved and they were seen as mutineers. And Chamberlain was given these folks under armed guard and under threat of execution. So by the time they reached him, they were ready to give up and had no interest in fighting. But he was able to win them over. He was from the same state as they were. He was from Maine and they were a Maine regiment as well. And he just talked talked to them like a colleague, and he treated them well. While the other divisions were not giving them food and and ostracizing them, he said, you know, welcome back. We want you here. You can, you know, be a big part of this. You're important to us. We'll treat you nicely. We'll treat you decently. Come back to the fold. Become part of our team. That sort of thing is what works in building collaboration, building teamwork and loyalty among your staff and your colleagues. So that's just one. The other leadership lesson is that Stonewall Jackson never mentored 
General Yule, and, and Yule succeeded him in Gettysburg. And the lesson in leadership is you have to develop your next in line. And the failure of Jackson to mentor Yule helped lead to the Confederate loss. Those are all great lessons. It's amazing how we can look back at history and even today apply those lessons. So, Mike, just one quick final question regarding the content. What were you most surprised to learn during your time at Wharton? What I was most surprised to learn happened on the first day. One of the professors asked, how many of you are going through significant change in your personal business situation, in your job, or in your organization? Every single person raised their hand. What I took from that was not that all these people are having an existential crisis and decided at the same time they had to take the Wharton class, but that these are people who are constant learners and are always looking to improve themselves and better situate themselves and their organizations. And that even though there's a field called change management, a very big field, the best business people realize that change is constant and they're always being flexible. They're dynamic. They're learning new skills. They're training. They're taking courses. They're working with other people. They're a sponge of knowledge. And that's what I got out of it, that the most business savvy people know that change is a constant. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your experiences with us, Mike. Thank you, Holly. It was great to participate. That does it for this month's podcast. Be on the lookout for bonus material throughout the month and be sure to subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Once again, I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.